We've been in the post-pandemic work-from-home experiment for more than three years now. How's it going? It's evident now that probably most people like the opportunity to work from home some of the time. And many organizations, by no means all, but many organizations have adapted the way they work so that a substantial number of their employees work from home at least some of the time. So that suggests that on balance, they find it better than the way we used to do things. Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day, seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're revisiting the work from home question. How is it working out? Who's doing it? How are companies responding? And are we still as productive as we were in the office? It's a rolling experiment that economists are following closely because of the effects on both individuals and society at large. By the way, our guest today told us what his favorite pie was back when we had him on the show a few months ago. So we asked for another helping. My name is Stephen Davis. I'm a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, professor emeritus at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. I did tell you that my favorite pie last time was apple pie with vanilla ice cream. My second favorite, I'd have to say boysenberry. Well, Steve, uh, since we've had you on the show a couple of times talking about the work from home phenomenon, I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a statistical timeline, some historical context of how this has ebbed and flowed, starting maybe from... 2019, before the pandemic, or even before that, if you want. Uh, give us uh, an audio chart, if you will. An audio chart. Okay. So if you go back to um, the mid-90s, near as we can tell, maybe 3 4% of full paid workdays were done from home. And if you kind of scroll forward to 2019, it's more like 7%. So definitely on an upward trajectory, but still pretty modest compared to what we've become accustomed to. Uh, during the pandemic itself, it shot up to over half of all paid work days being done at home. And that's just because some people weren't working. They were in uh, jobs that weren't essential, but had high risk. And over the past year, it's settled down to something more like uh, a quarter of all paid work days done at home, which is enormous relative to anything we've experienced since at least a big movement away from farms to factories and cities. So. That's kind of where we are now. It's also, I I don't expect any further declines. It's pretty much been stable over the past year or so by many measures. And when you ask business executives, you know, what do they expect to happen at their own firms? We've done that in a survey with the Atlanta Fed. Um, and you average the results. They actually foresee uh, a bit of an uptick in both fully remote jobs and hybrid working arrangements over the next five years at their own firms, something they presumably know a lot about. All right. Well, you do something interesting here in your research, which is to turn around uh, a common question. And that question is why things haven't reverted back to pre-pandemic status quo. And you suggest that the question instead should be, if the shift was so possible and turned out to be so relatively easy, why didn't it happen earlier? And you have two hypotheses for an answer to that question. Uh, can you go through those for us? Yeah, I think that is the that, that's the right way to think about it because it, it's evident now that 
many people really like, probably most people like the opportunity to work from home some of the time. And many organizations, by no means all, but many organizations have adapted the way they work so that a substantial number of their employees work from home at least some of the time. So that suggests that on balance, they find it better than the way we used to do things. And, you know, does that make you scratch your head? Well, what do we know now or what's different now than what we knew and what we could do before the pandemic? So most of the basic technologies we use to work from home were already in place. They'd been put before the pandemic struck. They'd kind of come online over the previous 20 years. And that's everything from video conferencing technologies, collaboration tools like Slack, even the the diffusion of high-speed internet access. That had basically happened in the two decades before the pandemic. So a lot of the raw tools were in place, but we were using them at a modest level. But that's important to understand that because what it means is that the possibility, not the inevitability, but the possibility of a big shift to work from home, those conditions were already in place before the pandemic hit. So that's part of the story. But then a really big part of the story, according to our research, is that the plurality of workers and their managers were positively surprised by how well working from home actually worked in terms of feasibility, practicality, and just simple productivity measures. So not everybody had a favorable experience, but enough people had a favorable experience and their managers agreed that they said, well, why should we go back to the old way of doing things? Um, I am, for many tasks in my job, just as productive, maybe even more productive at home. There are many other tasks where I'm probably more productive on site, but that suggests we can split the work week. And moreover, I save a bunch of time and some money on commuting if I can work from home two or three days a week. So there was a lot of re-optimization, rethinking of what was the most practical way to arrange work over the week in terms of when I did it and where I did it. Along the way, several other things kind of happened as well, which is the old norm that working from home was like shirking from home kind of fell by the wayside. If you remember way back in the spring and summer of 2020, a good public spirited person worked from home because that meant they weren't helping to spread uh, the virus. So we went from a norm where working from home was sort of frowned on to suddenly it was the good thing to do if you were a public spirited person. And so that old norm got broken. And now workers and managers are much less likely to feel that there's something wrong with working from home. Another thing that happened is everybody got better at working remotely because they did it a lot. And on the company side, on the managerial side, and this this is one of the bigger challenges that organizations had to face and that they are still wrestling with to a considerable extent. If you have staff who aren't in your line of sight, then the way you manage people has to adjust. The way you evaluate their performance has to adjust. You have to figure out if people aren't all in the office at the same time, how are you going to facilitate communication and learning horizontally and vertically? So those are serious challenges, but to a considerable extent, we've learned how at least partly to meet those challenges over the past three years. So we're better at it than we used to be. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about measuring those perceptions, particularly about the practicality of working from home? Uh, what, what data sets were you looking at? Well, 
what we've done mostly, and there, there are many approaches, but what we've done is start by asking people um, to assess their own relative productivity. So you did a survey. Uh, we did a survey. And we've been doing a survey every month uh, now since um, summer of 2020, the Survey of Working Arrangements and Attitudes. And we ask these workers, there's typically you know five to 10,000 respondents per month. We ask these workers a whole bunch of questions, including questions in which they assess their own performance uh, working at home or working in the office. Well, that's interesting. You can you might be a little skeptical of the answers. As were we, we were worried that you know this might not be very meaningful information. But what gave us uh, a great deal of confidence is we related the workers' self-assessment of how productive they were when working remotely to how much their managers plan for them to work remotely after the pandemic settles down. And what we found is that people who thought they were pretty good at working remotely, well, those are the same ones where their managers said, yeah, we're going to let you work from home remotely, or we're going to plan for you to work from home remotely after the pandemic. So anyway, we we basically found that these self-assessments of people's productivity performance aligned very well with what their managers plan for them to do in the way of working arrangements. That tells us that there's a lot of accurate information in people's self-assessments of their productivity in working in one place versus another. So when we talk about this big shift in the perceptions of productivity, um, it really varies from employer to employer, doesn't it? And even from industry to industry. Can you talk about some of the differentiation there? Yes, it does. And that's um, an underappreciated aspect of this big shift to remote work. It's not uniform, certainly not across industries or occupations uh, or cities. But even when you drill down and you look at companies that are operating in the same industry and further focus on when they're recruiting for talent in the same occupations, you see they're going very different directions. So I'll give you a concrete example. And by the way, the way we do this is not with survey data, but with um, online vacancy postings. So here's an example of what we find when we do that. Um, If we look at automobile manufacturing firms, and we just look at their efforts to recruit in in engineering occupations, we look at Tesla, what do we see? And you can guess, basically, nobody is offered the opportunity to work from home in these job ads at Tesla. Right. Elon Musk has made it very clear that he, he is not interested clear. in that. He's not interested in that. That was true in 2019. It's true in 2022. Yeah. Well, then you go to Ford. Okay. Ford in 2019, no, basically nobody. But Ford in 2022, it's close to 10%. Then you go to General Motors, 2019, nobody. 2022, it's above 20%. And the other company that comes to mind is Honda. So Honda, again, virtually nothing in 2019. But in 2022, it's closer to 50%. So there's this explosion in the variety of working arrangements. And these working arrangements differ across companies. That's a big change from 2019, where it's kind of like in 2019, you went into the Baskin and Robbins and everybody got vanilla. (laughs) <laughs> and then in 2022, you go into Baskin and Robbins and they got 32 flavors. <laughs> so one of the other real differences, uh, aside from industry and even employer that you talk about in the research, is population density and how that affects how many people are working from home. Can you walk us through that? Really talking about kind of big city versus small city versus rural? Yes, it's really quite striking. And if you look in the 
20% of the population in the United States that lives in rural areas or small towns and so on, there's some remote work, but there's not really much relationship between population density as measured by you know people per square mile and remote work in the kind of the lower part of the density distribution. But then in the other 80, where the other 80% of people live, the story is pretty simple. The denser the local area measured either by where people live, their homes, or where their employer is located. You get the same pattern either way. It's the share of people who work remotely rises very sharply with local population density. So way at the top, you'll have densely populated zip codes in places like Brooklyn. It's interesting because historically, economists, and not just economists, but social scientists and people generally, have thought of cities as places where people agglomerate because there's a, there's some productivity spillovers associated with being in close physical proximity. And what's happened is that the shift to remote work is biggest in exactly those kinds of places, um, which raises a bunch of questions about, well, should we be worried about this? You know, why is it happening? If proximity is such a great thing, why do people now want and get a lot less of it, at least in their work day, than they used to. Let's talk a bit about who has benefited most from these arrangements and who hasn't. Uh, take us through some of the the demographic characteristics of yeah. those who were able to work from home. Um, so let's start with age. The age one is interesting. The people who most want to work from home, and in fact, the ones who do work from home the most, are people in their 30s and early 40s. Uh, and, and that's largely because that's when people tend to have kids. And it's extremely valuable to be home a couple of days a week if you have you know, young kids. So that's very clear in the data. It shows up, as I said, if you just ask people how much they want to work from home, if you ask them about their willingness to uh, shade their pay increases, if they can stay home, and if you just look what they actually do. Then you look at the younger people, especially people, uh, say, in their 25 and under, they are keener to go to the office or go to the work site, partly because they worry about lost learning and networking opportunities if they don't go there. FaceTime. Yeah, FaceTime. And, and you learn from your coworkers, you learn from your supervisors. Some of that learning, at least historically, is best done in person. Uh, young people seem to recognize that, both in terms of what they say in our surveys, but in terms of what they actually do in their day-to-day uh, -day work lives. And of course, especially for young people who are single or not in some kind of um, long-term relationship, the social aspect of work is also extremely important. And maybe even if they are uh, in a long-term relationship, the social aspect of, of work is extremely important. Then when you go to older folks, they tend to go back to the work site more than people in their 30s and early 40s do. And it's partly because the, the demands of child rearing are, are behind them in many cases. But it may also be because they, again, kind of like the social aspect of work. And then some people are just, this is the way I always did it. And why would I change now? Right. And how about women versus men? Women versus men. So that's an interesting one. Women have a stronger preference to work from home than men. It's not a huge gap, but it shows up pretty consistently. And it's not explained away in a statistical sense by just the presence of children. I, so the way I interpret this result is women take on a larger share of the responsibilities for running the household and maybe caring for elderly people as well uh, than men do on average. I'm speaking here in terms of averages. 
And so they tend to have a stronger preference to work from home than men. And they, they work from home a little bit more than men. It's not a huge gap. And that's true even when you control statistically for the presence of, of children. On the child thing, I think this is a really important point. So I want to just elaborate on it. It's true for both men and women, and almost equally so, that if they have young children, uh, if they're living with young children under 14, they want to spend more time working from home. Which makes sense. It does make sense. And finally, what about uh, education and occupation as determinants of whether and how you're going to work from home? Yeah, the education story, and it overlaps with the occupation story, is very simple, very powerful. It's mainly the college-educated folks who have the this widespread opportunities to choose their working arrangements. It's not exclusively a phenomenon associated with college-educated folks, but it's definitely much more pronounced among college-educated people than others. So in that sense, the benefits that come along with this big shift to work from home are concentrated among college-educated people and the types of occupations and industries where college-educated people are a big share of the workforce. Steve, how does work from home in the U.S. compare to what's happening in other developed nations? Obviously, the pandemic was global. (laughs) So all kinds of things that came out of that would presumably also be global. What do we see elsewhere? One thing we see around the world um, in developed and developing economies is the shift to work from home is concentrated among the college-educated class. That's a global aspect of it. Now, the college-educated class is bigger in the United States as a share of the workforce than in most other countries. So that alone is a reason why the United States tends to have more work from home now than most other countries around the world. A second reason, and by the way, I'm just, the U.S. does have, you know, among the highest work from home rates, along with the U.K. and Canada in the world. But a second reason that the U.S. and also the U.K. tends to have a high work from home rate, they have an unusually large share of their economies in sectors that lend themselves to remote work. So information technology sectors, finance, insurance, professional and business services. So that's a second reason. Third reason is we're blessed with larger homes in the United States than people in most of the rest of the world. And one of the things that really affects the desirability and the productivity of working from home is the capacity to have some something like a home office. And that's a lot easier to do for the average American worker than for the average worker who lives in Tokyo, for example. There's another reason, another reason which I think is um, quite interesting. The United States had a harsher pandemic experience than most other rich countries. And it was harsher in two respects. First, we were less successful on the health front. And you can see this in terms of death rates uh, attributed to the pandemic or hospitalizations. Uh, Those were higher in the United States than most other rich countries. And it went on for longer. So what did that mean? That meant we kind of accumulated more experience in working from home because people were fearful of what the consequences would be to their health if they went out and into the workplace or elsewhere. In addition, the United States had a longer and more pronounced clampdown on social and economic activities than most other rich countries. Again, that meant that we had a longer experience of working remotely and figuring out how to make it work. 
partly by virtue of choice and partly by virtue of you know, social distancing mandates promulgated by government authorities. So if we assume that the trend continues of work from home not going away and continuing to be part of the American workforce landscape, what are some of the knock-on effects of that, uh, particularly in terms of wages and, as you've been talking about, productivity? Um, you know, When I think of pay, I know anecdotally that some companies will offer work from home in lieu of higher pay, basically as a, as a benefit. Um, can you talk about how that's playing out uh, and costs involved in all this for U.S. companies? We do indeed see that some companies think quite consciously about the trade-off between the working arrangements that they offer to their employees and what they have to pay them. In the survey of business uncertainty, we've asked businesses across the United States whether they use the expansion of work from home as a way to moderate wage pressures. And about 40% of the companies say, yes, they do. One way that happens is exactly as you suggested. When they're hiring somebody new, they say, look, you can work in, in the city where we're located and this is what we'll pay you. Or you can have a job where you only have to come in a few days a week. You can live anywhere you want, including places that are less expensive to live, but you won't earn quite as much. That's one way in which you can, in which companies can exploit the ability to um, recruit more broadly to uh, lower their wage costs. In addition, if you have a workforce that is remote, especially if they are fully remote, that cuts down on your space needs and all of the costs that come with maintaining a physical footprint. So that's a kind of a savings associated with the shift to work from home. It's not a direct savings in labor costs per se, but it nonetheless reduces the costs of the overall operation. So there are big potential cost savings for employers. And of course, that leads to the, well, what about the next question, which is, well, what about the effects on productivity? Because it's great to get these cost savings if there's no big negative effects on productivity. But if there are big negative effects on productivity, then the cost savings might be outweighed by the loss in productivity. The productivity landscape is a little complicated, but it's, it's important to first to just kind of understand why and, and step back for a second. Let me start with a very common sense observation, and that is jobs, workers, managers, organizations, they all differ in their suitability for remote work. And even if you look at a particular job, the tasks associated with that job differ greatly in their suitability for remote work. Some tasks really call for physical presence, some don't. So we should not expect any simple answer to the question of whether remote work is good or bad for productivity. It will vary by job, by worker, by the ability of the manager to handle remote workers, by whether the organization set up, and of course, by the, the characteristics of the job and, and the tasks within the job. So that's kind of point one. Second reason it's complicated is that Many of the studies that were done early on in the pandemic, including some that got a lot of attention in the media, were basically answering the following type of question. What happens to an organization's productivity when all of a sudden, with almost no advance notice, they have to shift from people working on site to people working remotely? Not surprisingly, it, doesn't, it didn't work very well in many cases. And so I'll, I'll state what I think is the big question in this area. How will a lasting shift to work from home or affect productivity, because I think that's what we're in store for. 
when working arrangements are a matter of choice rather than necessity, as they were in the pandemic, and when organizations and individuals have adapted to their preferred working arrangements. I think that's the key question. First, you got to ask yourself, well, what productivity measure do you actually want to use? The one that the statistical authorities typically focuses on is output per hour worked. It's how a manager thinks about productivity. But if you ask a worker, they're going to think in terms of how much work do they accomplish for the amount of time they have to devote to their job. And if they devote eight hours on site to the job and uh, another hour commuting to and from the job, then from the worker's perspective and really from society's perspective, it took nine hours to produce the work that was accomplished in eight hours on the job. Well, what if you could accomplish the same work if you stay at home, you work eight hours, but you don't have the commute? All of a sudden, from the worker's perspective and from the societal perspective, you're getting the same amount of work for a roughly 10% reduction in the time devoted in accomplishing that work. That's a productivity savings from the worker's perspective and from society's perspective. And often people move back and forth between these two productivity concepts without recognizing it. What it all boils down to is if you get the statistics from, say, the Bureau of Labor Statistics and they tell you what's happened to labor productivity, those statistics don't capture the time savings that come with work from home. So there's a hidden productivity gain, which is probably on the order of 3%. This is a one-time gain associated with the shift to work from home that we've been talking about that doesn't get captured by standard productivity measures. So, Steve, here we are at the end of 2023. Work from home is still evolving a bit, clearly here to stay. But if you look into a crystal ball for 2024 and beyond, uh, I wonder if you could talk about what you see in terms of this kind of no longer being a phenomenon, as I called it at the start of our conversation, but really a new normal. Yes, I do think it's a new normal. There's been a lot of learning that's happened by organizations by individuals, by managers. It's practical, it's feasible, even in jobs where we would never have dreamed of doing remotely uh, before. So that learning isn't going to disappear. Also, managers and organizations have invested in new skill sets that help them manage remote, workly, more, remote work uh, more effectively than they did before the pandemic. That's not going to go away. A third factor is that the products and the technologies that we rely on for remote work have improved rapidly since the pandemic struck. And there's a good economic reason for that. All of a sudden, the market for products and services and platforms like Zoom that allow people to remote work remotely or to collaborate remotely, all of a sudden, the, the size of that commercial market rose by a factor of five or 10. Well, Google, Microsoft, Zoom, Facebook, they all see this. And what do they say to themselves? All of a sudden, this market is huge. It's much bigger than it was before. What are we going to do? We're going to invest in new technologies, new products, new services to service this market. And they've been doing that. You can see that shift most clearly, most easily, if you look at the composition of newly filed U.S. patent applications, huh. which which I've done. And basically what happened is, that share was pretty flat for years before the pandemic, and it roughly doubled within a year after the pandemic. That is fascinating. Yeah. What does that mean in terms of where we're going? 
It means that all these tools that we make use of, uh, not only are we getting better at using the tools, the tools are getting better too, and they're getting better faster than they did before the pandemic. Now, that's not going to go on forever, but it'll continue probably for a few years. So as well as these tools work now, it's likely they'll work better and that new tools will come online as well in the years ahead. That's just going to further entrench the new normal. Well, Steve, I believe you are working from home at this moment, correct? I'm in my office. Oh, you're in your office. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm working from home, so so we represent the divide. <laughs> we represent the divide. Um, I now live only a bike, short bike ride from my office, and so I uh, come into my office more often. All right. The commute, is, the commute isn't quite as onerous as it used to be. Sounds lovely. Well, Steve Davis, uh, it's always a delight to have you on the show. Thanks for coming back on. Thank you for having me, Tess. It's, it's been great fun. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on this show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Entitled, and it's about human rights. Co-hosted by lawyers and law school professors Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsburg, Entitled explores the stories around why rights matter and what's the matter with rights. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI Communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>